Welcome to Brain and a Vat. Uh, we are joined by Alistair Norcross today from the University of Colorado Boulder. Alistair, would you like to start with a thought experiment? I'd like you to imagine, just for a minute, that you are the operator of a, a drone up in the sky, which is armed with an air-to-surface missile. And here, here's the situation. The security forces in this particular country, let's say Afghanistan, have been tracking a terrorist who is planning to detonate a bomb, uh, a suicide bomb, in a crowded market, which would kill anything from, let's say, 200, 300, 400 people. Luckily, you know exactly where this terrorist is. You have the, you have the particular house pinpointed, and from your surveillance, you can tell that in the house, you have the terrorist who is preparing the, the suicide vest and two or three accomplices, and, and that's it. As far as you know, there are no innocent people inside the house. So your, your plan is to launch the missile at the house, destroying the house, killing the terrorist, preventing the attack. But at the last minute before you, before you launch the missile, your surveillance colleagues on the ground tell you that there is a, a child fruit vendor who, who has set up a stall right outside the house, just on the other side of the wall, who would certainly be killed if the missile would strike the house. And efforts to get the child to move have been unsuccessful. The terrorist is about to leave the house and walk to the market and detonate the bomb. So you're faced with this choice. You can go ahead with the plan, which would destroy the house, would kill the terrorist, but would also kill an innocent victim, a child. Or you could refrain from doing that with the almost certain conclusion that the terrorist would detonate the bomb in a crowded market, killing hundreds of other innocent people. There's the choice. And obviously it's a choice that no one uh, wants to be faced with. Now, I mean, this is a, a fictional case, but it's, uh, it, it's the kind of thing which does actually occur in war zones, especially with the, the kind of technology that we, we now have. So what kinds of considerations should you weigh in this situation? The moral theory that, that I favor, known as uh, utilitarianism, focuses its evaluation of actions on the consequences of the actions. Basically, you simply ask yourself, well, it's not simple, but you ask yourself, what will happen if I do this? What will happen if I do that? What will happen if I do this other thing? So from the options that confront you, you try to evaluate the consequences. And of course, what this theory says is that the moral considerations entirely affected by the value of the different consequences. Now, by, by value, I mean just basically, you know, how good or bad is it if this thing happens versus that thing happens? So, so part of this theory has to be, you know, some kind of some kind of account of what makes consequences good or bad. And the account that I favor, the account which is associated with this theory utilitarianism, which goes back at least as far as the, the English philosophers, Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill is that what makes consequences good or bad is how, how well or badly people and other sentient creatures do in those outcomes. So how much 
happiness there is, how much, that, that's the good side, of course, how much suffering there is, that's the bad side. And most utilitarians like myself believe that human beings are not the only creatures who can experience happiness or can suffer. In fact, most, if not all of the animals that we, that we come into contact with, either directly or indirectly, are capable of, of good states of well-being, you know, happiness, pleasure, that kind of thing, or, you know, unfortunately, very bad ones, pain, suffering, that kind of thing. So in the example that I, that I began with, the question would be, well, first of all, you know, are these really the only options? And if you unfortunately decide, yes, these are the only two things you can do, you can destroy the house, almost certainly killing the innocent victim as well as the terrorist. Or if you don't destroy the house, almost certainly what will happen is the terrorist will then kill many other people. So you would look at that situation and, and you would say, well, it's a terrible thing that an innocent child dies if I destroy the house. But it's also a terrible thing when other innocent people die because a terrorist detonates a bomb. And unfortunately, in this situation, there are far more other innocent people who will die if I don't direct the missile at the house. And so the utilitarian would say, on, again, on the assumption that these are really the only two options, that there is no way of getting the child away from the house in time, that the, the morally better thing to do is to launch the missile kill the terrorist, and unfortunately also kill the, the innocent victim. And this distinguishes utilitarianism from some other approaches to uh, ethics, which some of which may say uh, it, is always, it is always wrong to kill or maybe intentionally to kill innocent people. And so in launching the missile, one of the things you're doing is killing the innocent child as well as killing the presumably not innocent terrorist and accomplices. So if it's always wrong to kill uh, innocent people, then launching the missile would have to be wrong. You might think, well, well, wait a minute, if you don't launch the missile, haven't you killed the innocent victims in the marketplace? Non-utilitarian approaches would say, well, no, you haven't actually killed them. The terrorist is the one who's killed them. And so what you've done, uh, if you don't launch the missile, is you've allowed them to die or you've let them die. Not that that's a wonderful thing to do, but that it's worse, maybe infinitely worse, to kill innocent victims. And so in that case, some anti-utilitarian approaches would say, no, you can't launch the missile. Terrible as it is that the terrorists will destroy you know, hundreds of other innocent people, your choice is, is <clears throat> decided by the fact that you know, you're not allowed to, to, to kill. So even if you normally you wouldn't be allowed to let people die if you had an alternative, but if your alternative is even worse, morally speaking, which is to kill, then you can't do that. The utilitarian does not think that there is a, an important, a morally important difference between you killing someone and you letting somebody die. Because the important thing, again, is to say, well, what will happen if I do this? What will happen if I do that? And if the fact is that if I do this thing, and let's say, don't launch the missile, what will happen is that hundreds of innocent people will die, even if it's not the case that I will have killed them, given that my behavior has made the difference to whether they die or not, then I have to take their deaths into consideration and weighing their deaths against the death of the one innocent child. I mean, there's no good option, but the, the, the least bad option in that case is for me to kill the innocent child rather than for me to let the terrorist kill hundreds of other innocent people.
The deontologist is the person who thinks that what matters when you perform an action is not its consequences, but how your action comports with certain duties. So whether your action satisfies certain rules, uh, which apply to all actions in all circumstances. And, and one of the rules that they're going to suggest is that, as you say, all innocent life is sacred and should never be sacrificed. And that they're going to try and push, plug holes, or not plug, but, but puncture holes into your story, right? So they're going to say things like, well, you don't know for sure that this bomber is actually going to go to the market. The bomber might not. His vest might not detonate. He might have a change of mind. Your intelligence might be wrong as the intelligence operator who's watching the scenario from the outside. And you're just presuming this. And in so doing, you're killing an innocent life. You're killing an innocent person as a means to an end. And that end is not 100% certain. Perhaps you're quite certain, but not 100% certain. And that as philosophers, we can lean back in our armchairs and we can come up with an example that seems to only have two possible outcomes. But in real life, it's more complicated. And, and it's real life that these theories are supposed to tell us what to do, how to behave. Um, so given that, the deontologist is going to say, but, but hold on, you don't fire the missile. You don't blow up the apartment where the, or the household where the, the bomber is staying. Hmm. Right. You're, you're absolutely right. They, the, the, the deontologist, which is a term sort of given to the main sort of anti-utilitarian approach, the deontologist will, will say things like that. But let me make a couple of points first. First of all, it, it's not true that deontologists in general, or even most of them, say that consequences don't matter. So most deontologists will say, yes, consequences do matter. You have to weigh them and you have to somehow weigh them against the whole question of whether you, you know, whether your behavior conforms to rules. So most deontologists will include, you know, as one of their rules, you know, the rule that you should, you know, promote well-being and that you should, you should try and prevent suffering when you can and so, so their rules will include rules that make reference to consequences. Now, the question about uncertainty, I mean, that's a very important question, right? I mean, and, and it's, it, it's a very important point that, you know, we, we usually cannot be certain uh, of what the consequences of our actions will be. But of course, that's a point that cuts both ways. To the extent that it's merely the point that you can't be 100% certain then this applies also to launching the missile. You can't be 100% certain that this will kill the innocent child. You can't be 100% certain that your, your colleagues on the ground have correctly identified that as an innocent child. Maybe there is one there, maybe there isn't. So, so if we're gonna rely on, on like very small possibilities of, uh, of error, then the small possibilities of error will, will apply to both sides and they'll cancel each other out. So you, you can't sort of lean on that. In general, we all have to act under conditions of uncertainty. Um, none of us knows exactly what's going to happen because of, you know, because of what we do. And we, we are faced with sort of differing degrees of certainty and uncertainty regarding the consequences of our behavior. So rules like, you know, don't kill are generally applied in specific contexts. Right? I, I mean, how do you apply a rule like don't kill? Well, I'm 
pointing a gun at you, don't pull the trigger. Why don't pull the trigger? Well, because if you pull the trigger, then, you know, you'll kill me. Well, are you certain you'll kill me? What if the gun jams? You know, what if, uh, you know, what, what if at the last second my hand jerks and the bullet goes somewhere else? So, so uncertainty uh, is not going to rescue a deontologist in, in a situation like that. Now, you know, given, given that we have to operate under conditions of uncertainty, the question then is, well, what do we do with that uncertainty? What the utilitarian says is, well, you, you have to, you know, do the best you can. And doing the best you can means, you know, at least roughly trying to figure out what are the chances that something will happen and how good or bad is it if that thing happens. So what the utilitarian, you know, doesn't do is sort of fall back on what look like sort of comforting rules, like, well, never do this. So never kill an innocent person. Because then the, the you know, as I say, the, the, the question of uncertainty will apply to that too. So, well, okay, well, if I never kill, an, never kill an innocent person, presumably that doesn't mean I should never do anything that has any chance of an innocent person dying. Because in this case, if I launch the missile, there's a very strong chance an innocent person will die. If I don't launch the missile, there's also a very strong chance that innocent people will die. So, so the question then is, why, why does it matter whether the death is brought about sort of immediately by me or by somebody else? If it's the terrorist who detonates the bomb, but the terrorist wouldn't have detonated the bomb if I had launched the missile, then of course, I stand in what we might call the causal chain that leads up to the deaths of the people in the marketplace. And so my behavior is relevant. And what difference does it make whether my behavior in that case is, well, let's say, um, not launching a missile versus launching a missile in the other option and that leads to the death of the innocent child. You might think, well, you know, if you launch the missile, there's nothing between your behavior and the death of the child. At least there's nothing involving another person. And obviously there's something between it. The missile has to get launched. It has to fly through the air. It has to explode. I mean, there's all kinds of physical things that have to happen. But, but in terms of, you know, human choices, my choice is the last sort of human choice before the death of the child. Whereas if I don't launch the missile, and the result is that hundreds of people die in the marketplace. You know, I made the choice not to launch the missile, but then other people have to make choices in particular, maybe just the one, you know, in particular, the terrorist has to make the choice to go to the market. But then the question is, well, why, why does this actually matter? That it's that somebody else has to make a choice as well. We might come back to your, you know, the earlier point you were pushing me on, which is, well, it matters because we don't know how other people are going to behave. But then that just comes back to the question of, you know, levels of uncertainty. We could be, you know, very, very, very clear that the terrorists will behave in this way without being certain, but just as we could be very, very, very clear that launching the missile will destroy the child as well as the building without being certain. There are many other situations where you might think, well, we, we wouldn't hesitate for a minute to think the right thing to do was to, you know, kill somebody. I mean, let's say there were there was an attacker threatening a classroom full of children. Unfortunately, in the United States, this this happens with, you know, well, alarming frequency. Let's say that you were in you were in the classroom 
And there was an attacker with an automatic weapon about to pull the trigger and, and kill a bunch of children. May go even further. Maybe the attacker's already killed one or two. So, so you know, you okay, you know, this is a real gun and this person is prepared to kill people, but there's still another 20 children there. Well, if you kill the attacker, then you will save the children. The fact that if you don't kill the attacker, for the other 20 children to die, somebody else would have to make a decision. The attacker would have to decide to keep on shooting. That doesn't get, let you off the hook. For, for not killing them in this situation. This is a, a, you know, a situation of you know, defense of other innocent people. Now, of course, you might think the difference there is that in the, in the case of killing a would-be school shooter, you, you're not killing an innocent person. Well, that's, that's true, you're not killing an innocent person. Whereas in the case of the child, you're killing an innocent person. But why, why would this make all the difference? I mean, you might think, well, yeah, it would make a difference if it was, you know, you could achieve the same effect by killing an innocent person or, or a, a guilty person. But that's not the situation here. The situation here is that, you know, a bunch of innocent people will die unless you kill, you know, in my first example, one innocent person along with some guilty people or in the school case, unless you kill one guilty person. But in, in either case, the, what's at stake is the lives of a lot of innocent people and you can make the difference. So, so you might think that the, you know, the, the, the deep underlying motivating thought behind this approach, utilitarianism, is that we can make a difference to how well or badly the world goes. And the difference we make is what's really important. If we can make a difference and we can make a good difference, then we should do that. We've got reason to do that. If we can make a bad difference, we've got reason not to do that. And that's what really counts. What really counts is the difference we can make to the world. Can we make the world a better place? Can we make the world a worse place? And if we can make the world a better place, we should do that. It's a very sort of simple thought. I mean, one, another way to motivate this is, is you know, just imagine, again, this is, a, this is a, a fictional situation, but it's not completely unrealistic. Imagine that, that you meet a friend who tells you that they, they have heard on the radio of something, something really significant happening. In, in a distant country. But here's the problem. The radio reception wasn't particularly good uh, and, and they'd had a drink or two. And so they're not quite sure about the details of what they heard, but they are sure of this. Either what happened was that there was a disaster, maybe a natural disaster, which say killed 20,000 innocent people. Or what happened was that a breakthrough discovery had been made in, in treatment of a disease which had saved the lives of 20,000 people. They, they, they're sure about the 20,000 bit, they, that bit stuck in the mind, but they weren't quite sure which one it was. Was it the, the, the 20,000 innocent people had died in a disaster or was it that the 20,000 people's lives have been saved because of a discovery? They you know, they know that one of these things have happened. And so now imagine your reaction to hearing that. So I think that, you know, any, you know, any ordinary decent person and hearing that would think, well, I, I, I hope it was the discovery that saved the lives, you know, <laughs> and one of these things happened. I certainly hope it wasn't that 20,000 people died. Now notice something about this, about this example. This example doesn't involve you making a choice. This example doesn't involve you trying to decide what to do. This example just involves you hoping that one thing happened rather than another. And that, 
that shows what you regard to be good versus bad. And of course, most ordinary decent people would regard that it to be much better if 20,000 people's lives were saved than if 20,000 people's lives were snuffed out. And so given that, given that you, you don't have the power to, to decide what happens, this is just a, a psychological fact about you. What do you hope happened? Now, I hope that you hope what happened was that the lives were saved rather than lost. And this shows that you think it would have been better if 20,000 innocent people had had their lives saved rather than 20,000 innocent people had had their lives snuffed out. And so this, this goes to show that you believe that the world will be a better place, putting aside any other differences. So as philosophers like to say, other things being equal, the world would be a better place if 20,000 people's lives were saved rather than if 20,000 people's lives were snuffed out. So one of the things that you value is, you know, people living longer, not, not dying prematurely. Considering, you know, situations like that can help you sort of figure out what you think of as making the world better rather than worse. I mean, you could also imagine variations on that example where, where, instead of lives being lost versus saved, it was, you know, either 20,000 people were subjected to, you know, a considerable amount of suffering because, you know, some, some disease got loosed on the land, non-fatal, but still, you know, caused a lot of suffering, or the discovery was one which, which reduced a lot of suffering. Again, it didn't save lives, but it, but it reduced suffering. So maybe, maybe, you know, a, a novel treatment for chronic back pain was, was discovered again, you, presumably you would hope that it was the, the suffering reducing thing that had happened rather than the suffering increasing thing that had happened. And that, that shows that you think that it's better when people suffer less uh, rather than more. To give you a couple of cases that make life more difficult for you. Thus far, you've given us, I think, quite intuitive cases where people are going to be sympathetic. So I think people think in a state of war, sometimes it'll be the case that innocent people will die to achieve a greater good. No one's going to fight you on whether they hope for people to you know, be in immense suffering or whether to experience amounts of pleasure. So let's try and give you cases that are tough. So imagine this, you've got a, a serial killer who's been, let's say, raping and killing women at an incredible pace. He's beaten out the, the Green River killer, so he's over 50 you know, dead women. And he's very wily, so he's very good at sort of escaping, you know, the, the grasp of the police. And he puts forward a proposal. He says, look, guys, I've got this long list of women that I want to rape and kill. And I, you know, I kind of do one a month. But I'll tell you what, if you just surrender one of them to me, I won't do it you know, this year. And just one every year, make a sacrifice to me. I'll rape her and I'll kill her. I'm going to do it anyway. It's the same woman. I'm giving you a list. I'm going to hunt her down. I'm going to do it myself. But I just want you guys to do it and I'll kill a lot less people. The utilitarian has to say that is the correct thing to do. You have to submit yourself to the moral blackmail. You have to participate in the serial killer's scheme, in the serial killer's scheme because that's what yields the least amount of suffering. You are bound on that. Here's the second case. So you mentioned to me, animal suffering really matters. And we know that we kill hundreds of millions of animals in very cruel ways. And there might be a way to stop that, which is to actively take steps 
to shut down, uh, let's say, slaughterhouses and to engage in acts of terrorism. So what you should do is you should um, plant bombs at some of these places. You kill a couple of innocent factory workers, but you create enough fear that you try and shut down the meat production industry. And let's assume we can put all the uncertainty stuff aside. You're going to be successful. You are going to save these hundreds of millions of animals. And you just have to kill a couple of, you know, innocent, you know, factory workers. But you will have maximized the good. You will have generated a state of affairs that is objectively better if we care about, you know, pain and pleasure. And I think you have to bite both of those bullets. And I want to see how you do on that. So, I mean, this is, a, as you know, this is a standard a standard response to to utilitarianism. So let me do what might seem like cheating just for a moment to, to, to make a point, and then I'll come back and address what, you know, these cases in particular. So, let, so, so let's, say, let's say I come across somebody who has a different moral approach from me, and, he, and this person says, yeah, I, I think the right thing to do is whatever, whatever God says uh, is right. Uh, I believe in this theory divine command theory you know what god says is right i mean god you know god is perfect you know obviously what god says is right and so i say well imagine for a minute you know that there's you know i don't know you know let's take your example there's someone who's raping and killing people and i'm and i'm the police chief and i don't know what to do and then and god says to me you know here's what you should do you need to sacrifice to me painfully uh, a couple of virgins take them to the top of the ziggurat make x shaped crosses and pull out their hearts and hold them up and you know and and, and then i'll stop it and 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 but you shouldn't do it because i'll stop it you should do it because i'm telling you to do it because i'm i'm the lord your god you know and i said well look you divine command theorist you know you have to bite the bullet you have to say that's the right thing to do now, of course, you know, what would a divine command theorist say to that? Well, on the one hand, the divine command theorist might say, well, yeah, if God really did say that, that would be the right thing to do. But God's not going to say that because God's good. So, I mean, here's the thing. Any moral theory can be subject to that kind of, of response. Let's say, let's say you believe in the, in the theory that Immanuel Kant advocates. Now, Kant says, act on the maxim that you can will to be a universal and and there's notorious difficulties in figuring out, you know, what does this mean? I mean, how, how do we tell whether you can will a maxim to be a universal law? Well, different Kantians disagree. So I could say, aha, Kantian, I've got you. What if this maxim, what if, what if this principle that Kant calls the categorical imperative, what if the categorical imperative tells you to, you know, deliver up some virgins to a rapist, you know, once, once a month? What if the categorical imperative tells you to do that? Well, then, Kantian, you've got to bite the bullet and say it would be right to do that. But the Kantian would say, but the categorical competitor wouldn't say that. Really? I, I mean, I've, you know, I've never met two Kantians who agree on what the categorical comparative actually says. So, so, I mean, we can always say, what if your moral theory told you to do this thing and, and this thing is a horrible thing? Then you'd have to say it was right to do this thing. So on one level, you know, the correct answer is, well, yeah, if my theory told me, really told me to do that thing, then yes, it would be the right thing to do. And the Kantian has to say that if Kierkegaard imperative told him to, to sacrifice you know, people to the rapists would be the right thing to do. The divine command theorist has to say, if God told him to do this, it would be the right thing to do. 
Likewise, if the, you know, the utilitarian would say, yeah, if it really would maximize utility to do that, meaning it will be the best of all possible options, it will be the right thing to do. Now, in my particular version of utilitarianism, I, I, this gets slightly more complicated. I, I say we shouldn't focus on questions of what's right or wrong. We should focus on what's better or worse. But we can get the, the same problem could arise. You could say, well, look, you know, my theory, the morally best thing to do would be to, to deliver the victims to this, to this murderous rapist. If that, you know, if re really all the other options led to worse consequences. So, so, so what, what should we say to this? I mean, it, it's not very satisfying to say, well, look, if, you know, if your theory really tells you to do that, then you should do that because that's, I mean, no theory is going to be better or worse off than any other theory in that respect because any you could say well imagine that your theory tells you to do this well for any theory you could imagine your theory tells you to do this sort of horrible thing so then the question we have to ask ourselves is well what's going on with our moral thinking when we when we sort of engage in this kind of dialogue and, and he, here's how here's how the dialectic works it's it's somewhat parallel to scientific reason so he, here's what's going on. Okay, a moral theory is like a scientific theory in the sense that it, it's a theory about, well, scientific theories are, you know, theories about, you know, what happens if, or how the world works, what happens if, you know, if this happens, then what happens next, you know, which electrons will do what, which protons will do the other thing, you know, can you, can you, pinpoint the 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 place and and you know and position and velocity at the same time and you know how many dimensions are there with vibrating strings and all that kind of stuff moral theories tell you you know what what the moral characteristics of certain choices would be so would actions be right or wrong would they be better or worse that kind of thing so how, how do we test scientific theories well to the extent that we can test scientific theories we ask uh you know, what predictions do these theories make? Well, a theory might make the prediction, for example, let's say an Aristotelian theory about gravity. That might make the prediction, and apologies to ancient philosophers of science if I've got this wrong, but it might make the prediction that heavy objects will fall faster than light objects. Well, famously, we can actually test that. We can, we can drop two things of different weights in a vacuum because we have to take away uh, wind resistance and to, you know, obviously we can't create a perfect vacuum. We get close enough, right? Drop two things of different weights in a vacuum and see what happens. Well, when we, when we do that, we discover, no, heavy things and, and, and light things, in fact, fall at the same rate. So we have falsified this, you know, this particular approach to physics in this case. Well, how do we do that for moral theories? Where you say, well, okay, treat, treat a moral theory as if it were a scientific theory making predictions. What kind of predictions? Predictions about which actions would be better or worse, right or wrong, good or bad, that kind of thing. So according to the utilitarian, and this is what you just did, right? According to the utilitarian, we can say, ah, if the world were like this, if the situation were like this, then the theory says the right thing to do is this thing, right? And in this case, you know, deliver the victim to the murderous rapist once a month or once a year. I've forgotten the details now, but yeah, do what the rapist demands. Right? If the world is like that, then that's the right thing to do. So just like a physical theory might say, if you set up the world, so you've got, you know, 
a feather and, and, and a lead weight and you drop them and the lead weight drops faster, you know, in, in a vacuum. Test it. Oh, it doesn't. Well, that theory is wrong. So how do you test the moral theory? Well, here's the way it's supposed to work. You consider the situation, you perform what we call a thought experiment. So it, it's like a physical experiment, except you can do it in your armchair. You perform this thought experiment. Now, what's the, what's the equivalent of observing the two things falling, right? In the physical theory, we have an observation and we say, oh no, they, they actually fell at the same rate. So the theory is wrong. The prediction was they fall at different rates, they fell at the same rate, theory is wrong. Well, the equivalent is we see whether the action really is right or wrong. So we say to the utilitarian, okay, if the world's like this, you have to do this thing. You have to deliver the victim. Well, now let's observe it. And we say, oh, but we observed that that's the wrong thing to do. That's the crucial point. How do we observe that that's the wrong thing to do? Well, we use what philosophers call intuition. We confront the theory and then we sort of realize that we feel horrified at the thought of handing over the victim. And we think, wow, no, that would be a terrible thing to do. So the equivalent of observing the two things falling is observing our own feelings, our own reactions, our intuitive judgment. Now, how you describe it might, might make a difference to how good a method you think this is. If you describe it as just seeing, seeing how you feel, it doesn't sound that reliable. If you describe it as, you know, sort of consulting your considered moral judgment, which has been honed over many years in, in very expensive boarding school and then Oxford and drinking a lot of port with similarly, similar minded people, then you might, then it might, then actually now, now I come to think of it, it doesn't sound very reliable then either, does it? And that's kind of the point. All we've got to go on when we make this judgment that what the utilitarian says is the right thing to do is actually the wrong thing to do. All we've got to go on is our reaction to it, right? But why do we think it really would be wrong to turn over the guy to the rapist? Well, here's, here's one possibility. We think it really would be wrong because it really would be wrong, right? But then we say, okay, well, what, what, what convinces us it really would be wrong? And here's the tricky thing. In the real world, no police chief, no ordinary person or even extraordinary person could ever be sure that turning over the innocent victim to the rapist would have the best results. In fact, there are very good reasons to think it wouldn't have the best results. I mean, even if in this particular case, even if it's true that the rapist really would have sort of foiled us, you know, knowing who the victims are, we are physically incapable of protecting them from the rapist. We can't build, you know, a, a, a fortress that's strong enough to stop the rapist breaking in. I mean, what kind of whips are we? But, you know, even if we were convinced of that, what about the precedent setting effect of giving in to, you know, rapist demands? We could say, well, look, even in this, you know, in this particular case, Let's assume, and again, I don't think we should ever assume this, but let's assume that regarding the behavior of this particular rapist, giving into this particular rapist's demands would have better effects than not giving into this rapist's demands. But 
But this isn't the only rapist in the world. This isn't the only person who might who might think, aha, you know, I can blackmail the police. I can I can extort behavior from the police. And so the the consequentialist, the the utilitarian consequentialism is just the general term given to the approach that says we focus on the consequences of our behavior. Utilitarianism is the best known version of this approach, the version associated with Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill, which says that it's sort of happiness or well-being of sentient creatures, humans and animals alike, uh, which which determines how good or bad things are. But you might think other things are good or bad as well. And so you might say, I focus on consequences, but not just on well-being. But so, so the consequentialist you know, would say, well, look, you can't just look at the immediate effect, right? You have to look at the effects to, you know, as far out as you can make any predictions. And of course, the further into the future you go, the less reliable the predictions are. But until you get to the point where you say, look, it's 50-50, I, I have no more reason to think this will happen than that, then you, you should still take into account anything that you, you know, you, you have, you know, some reason to think is more likely to go this way rather than that. So, so in, in this particular case, we might say, look, there's a very good reason why we're all horrified at the thought of handing over innocent victims to, you know, murderous rapists. And that's because in the world as it is, and the world as it's always been, and the world that has shaped our psychological reactions to things, it's always worse to do that. Or, you know, if it's not always worse to do that, it's like almost always worse to do that. And so it's a very good thing that we have this visceral reaction against it, because almost always this reaction leads us in the right direction. Now, of course, philosophers in their armchairs, you know, will say, aha, but what about the exceptional case? What if I just specify that, in fact, this is the exceptional case? Well, yeah, we can do that. We can specify that this is the exceptional case. But then the question is, why should we trust our intuitive reaction to a case like that? Given that our intuitive reactions are not, I mean, they're not sort of, you know, just sort of innate. Intuitive reactions are honed by our upbringing. Excuse me just a second. I have to let the cat out of this sure. room. He usually complains when I start talking and leaves earlier, but I think he was too busy <laughs> sleeping. Okay. <laughs> so, so the intuitive reactions we have to things are a matter of our upbringing, a matter of the, you know, the social pressures that, that we've been you know, subjected to throughout our entire lives. Uh, and one way that we can see that is, is to consider you know, the sort of different intuitive reactions that people have who were raised in different ways. I mean, I, I grew up in England and then went to the States or came to the States for graduate school and I, I've stayed here. But I, I noticed pretty early on that I had very different sort of intuitive reactions to certain kinds of, of social and polit political issues from most of the Americans around me. So on the question of say, the provision of healthcare, I mean, my, I was absolutely horrified at the thought that someone could be bankrupted by ill health, because no matter what you might think about the British National Health Service, it, it you know, didn't have to pay for it. I mean, you paid for it through taxes, but everybody paid for it through taxes and basically paid you know, different amounts depending on what you could afford. And if you were unemployed, you weren't going to pay paying anything. So the, the idea that the idea that the, the level of healthcare you get, or at least the whether you get life-saving healthcare at all, it should be a matter of what you could afford, I mean, it struck me as horrifying. Also, 
the American obsession with guns struck me as very strange because, again, I grew up in a country where the, the idea that, you know, everyone should have access to, like, handguns, it was just crazy. It was crazy because that's the way I was right. Now, I, you know, that kind of stuck with me. I, I still think it's kind of crazy, although I, you know, I've lived in this country longer than I lived in, in, in the UK. Um, and I, you know, I, I understand how, how people have different reactions to these things. But, but the point here is that our reactions in general, our, our reactions to morally loaded things in general, are very much a matter of our upbringing. And how much we should trust them it is a tricky issue. So it, we can't get by without consulting these reactions at all. I mean, you can't, you can't sort of think about morality without thinking about your intuitive reactions to certain cases. But that doesn't mean that you should take sort of everyone at every one of these things at face value. We might think, well, look, certain kinds of reactions might be more reliable than other kinds of reactions. And if we can see that certain kinds of reactions are sort of uh, highly dependent on particular sort of social or economic features of the society in which we grow up or features of our own situation in that society, then we should be more suspicious of trusting them. So when it comes to the, the animal rights example that you raised, uh, what most utilitarians would say about that is, well, yeah, if the way you can save, and it's not hundreds of millions, it's billions. If the way you can save billions of lives, if the only way you can save billions of lives involves you know, killing a handful of, of innocent people, then that really would be the right thing to do. But again, we've, we've got massive amounts of experience in the real world with you know, animal rights activists. And you know, for better or worse, they don't, I mean, they tend to engender more hostility than sympathy. Now, this is probably because agribusiness is very powerful and so will shape the narrative. But my view is that a sort of terrorist activity with the aim of helping animals will almost certainly backfire because it will, it will actually be counterproductive. If I honestly believed that you know, I could save billions of lives by you know, taking a small number of lives, human or otherwise, I would, I would think that that would be the better thing to do. But I don't believe that because again, I live in a world in which, in which people are, are sort of painted as, as terrorists simply for protesting, let alone <laughs> let alone doing things like, you know, blowing things up. I mean, the United States government will, will classify animal rights activists as terrorists, even if, they, even if they just, you know, protest and maybe chant and shout a bit. But of course, there's very powerful economic incentives for them to do that because there's billions of dollars in, in the raising and exploitation and infliction of suffering on animals. But there's another kind of case that's more difficult, maybe, for the utilitarian, yeah. which involves weighing someone's death against a whole lot of less severe forms of suffering that a whole lot of other individuals will have, which together, according to the utilitarian, when summed up, will amount to more than the death. So, for example, suppose that there's a whole lot of people who will experience a headache unless you take a particularly hated politician and put him on television and kill him in front of everyone in which case their headaches will abate because they'll feel, oh goodness, 
what a relief. This, this politician was causing us all such headaches. If we would just kill this politician, we'll all feel so much better. Now, it seems like the, the, the deontologist or the Kantian would say, hold on, you can't kill one person to save not just the lives of many others, but the headaches of many others. Now, when it comes to the lives of many others, perhaps you can sway our intuitions and you can explain away those intuitions, but it's not as easy to do so in cases where you're weighing up one person's life against lots of other people's, not their lives, but their headaches. So the question is, well, the deontologist intuitively, pre-philosophically, gives us the right answer. You can't kill the politician to save everyone a headache. And imagine it's a small headache. It's like just, just a little thump in your forehead, but it's millions of people experiencing this little thump. Perhaps they only experience it for five minutes. Every, all, all those millions of people in the country will, will be prevented from this little thump in their foreheads for five minutes. If we kill the politician, the deontologist says, don't do it. The utilitarian says, do it. Jason, you're supposed to yes, make the case yes. counterintuitive. I want you to make Alistair's life difficult. Yeah, I, Instead, you've picked a politician. Was, you're going to have people cheering on. <laughs> fucking kill him. That was going to be my, my first response. So it, uh, it just set the lions on him back there. A very nice politician. So okay, just, okay, he's okay, a, okay. Let's say right, he's, yeah. he's, not, he's not a nasty politician. He's just irritating. And he's he just, just irritating. Just, just, a little, just a little thump in people's foreheads for five right, minutes. Right. But lots of people. Yeah. We could we could just get rid of him and their headaches would disappear. Yes, yes. No, that's a that's right. That's an ex excellent point. So so one response to this is is to go back to well, you know what you said when you were sort of setting the scene for this example, which is to say, you know, I've been talking about cases where where your choices involve what you might think of as harms that are in the same category, and in in this case, exactly the same category. I've been talking about sort of you know. The, these people dying versus those people dying or, you know, or these animals dying, but, you know, death, basically preventing or causing the harm of death to some versus others, you know, few versus many, we might say, well, yeah, these are, these are, you know, difficult cases in the sense that they're psychologically difficult, but maybe morally speaking, they're not that difficult that they're, they're like, you know, rescue situations. So, you know, commonly philosophers will talk about situations, you know, you situations where you imagine that there are people sort of like clinging to a lifeboat that's sinking and you can maybe there are five people off in that direction and there's one person off in that direction and you're in between them and you can go one way and save five people or you can go the other way and save one person but but you can't you can't get to them all before they drown if you save the five you know the one will be dead before you can get back to them if you get save the one the five will be dead before you get back to them and so then pretty much everybody not just utilitarians and other consequentialists, but pretty much every moral theorist, not absolutely everyone, actually, there are one or two people who, who disagree with this, but the overwhelming majority of philosophers will say, well, yeah, you should save a larger number in that case. But then that's because, you know, we're talking about the same category. So you might think, okay, well, here's a suggestion. You know, you can compare these harms when they're in the same category, but what you, what you can't do is is sort of compare in the sense of sort of adding up so that you know in theory one side might be might outweigh the other or the other side might outweigh the one depending on what's in what's on each side 
you can't do that when when the harms are of, of sort of radically different sizes. So, you know, in your extreme example, you know, death in the one case, even just of one person, like an irritating politician, versus the harm of a small headache for millions, thousands, or maybe millions of others. So the suggestion then would be, well, yeah, we we, we can we'll we'll restrict our comparisons to harms of the same magnitude. But then the question is, okay, well. What do we mean by the same magnitude? Does that mean we can only compare death with death so that anything short of death could not outweigh a single death? And then it starts to get, it starts to get pretty counterintuitive. So, so let, me, let me sort of give you a realistic case, in fact, a, a kind of choice that, that, that is faced by uh, decision makers you know, a lot, and then I'll make it a bit more schematic. So the realistic, the realistic case is this. It, imagine a healthcare system that's that's charged with with delivering what you might think of as optimal levels of healthcare to the population of a, of a country. Many you know many nations have such healthcare systems. Most Western European nations have some kind of nationalized you know universal healthcare. Other nations have that too. Some notoriously don't have that. Even very wealthy ones, like the most wealthy one in the world. But Imagine that you're in one of these countries, let's say, you know, England. Uh, maybe I should say the UK, but I recently learned from a friend of mine that the healthcare system in Scotland is actually technically different from in England. The National Health Service Scotland is a different organization. So let's just focus on England. Well, you've got limited resources, right? You know, some would say too limited, but, you know, there's not an infinite amount of resources, not an infinite amount of money. And so you might be faced with the, with, with, with the following kind of choice you might be faced with the choice between devoting a large chunk of these resources to extending the lives of terminally ill people by a few months, perhaps by dialysis or, you know, or, or other sort of quite expensive machinery, or for the same expenditure of resources, you might be able to provide life-enhancing treatments to a much larger number of people. So for example, hip replacements. The evidence shows that hip replacements make a huge difference to the quality of life of people who have them. Cataract surgery, likewise, makes a huge difference to the quality of life uh, of people who have this. But people who need cataract surgery, people who need hip replacements, are not in danger of dying if they don't uh, have these things. They're in danger of, of you know, having, well, obviously one danger of dying eventually, but they're not in danger of dying prematurely if they don't have these things. They, what happens is that their, their lives go considerably better if they have them and worse if they don't have them. Now, very few people think that with, faced with a choice like this, you've always got to go with the thing that'll keep people alive the longest. I mean, one way, one way to sort of see that you probably agree with that is just imagine the life extension getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Imagine, you know, okay, so, so for this amount of money, we can give people dialysis for six months, extend their lives for six months. Well, let's say um, instead of that, we could extend their lives for three months. Or maybe there's a treatment where, you know, people who, who are very close to death, we could extend their life for a week. And it gets more and more expensive. At some point, you know, pretty much, I mean, people will disagree about where the point is, but pretty much everyone will agree. Well, at some point, it will be better to enhance the quality of the life of more people rather than save the lives, especially given that saving the life here just means, you know, they don't die now, they die in a week. 
because again, technically saving a life always means you don't die now, you die later. The only question is how much later. So it's always a question about you know, how much extra life you give someone. It's not like life versus death. Death comes to us all. Now, given that, given that, that you know, we all agree that, that in certain choice situations, preventing a harm that's short of death, in this case, let's say, you know, chronic pain, to a large number of people would be better than preventing death to a small number of people. The question then is, okay, well, how close? Well, let, I mean, let's say, just for the sake of argument, let's say that we'll define severe mutilation as a non-life-threatening but severely life-affecting harm. And we'll say that whatever level of mutilation we're talking about, it's the level which you think would be severe enough that if you were faced with the choice between saving one person's life and saving 100 people from severe mutilation, it'd be better to save the 100 people from being severely mutilated. Now, I mean, if your response is, well, there's no number, then I just don't believe you uh, because you could make the severe, you could make it, you know, so bad that at some point you're going to have to say, well, look, wait a minute, you know, if it's that bad, it's it's better to save 100 people from something that's that bad than one person from death. But if you grant me that, now I can get you all the way to headaches. Because you grant me that and say, well, okay, whatever the level of, of you know, horrible mutilation, terrible suffering is that you think will be severe enough that it's better to prevent 100 people from having that bad a, a degree of mutilation than one person from dying. Now imagine a level of suffering caused, I mean, it doesn't have to be caused by mutilation. Mutilation gets people's you know, juices flowing, but you know, we're really just talking about the suffering that comes from mutilation. Imagine a level that's just a little bit less than that. It's still pretty damn bad. It's just a little bit less than that. Well, presumably we can imagine a level that's, that's not quite as bad as, as what you know, I'm calling severe mutilation, maybe almost severe mutilation, but it's bad enough that rather than saving 100 people from severe mutilation, it would be better to save 10,000 people from almost severe mutilation. In other words, you know, 100 times that. But now, of course, we say, okay, well, but what about the next level then? The next level, which is still close enough to almost severe mutilation, that if it was, quick calculation, a million, right? That's a hundred times, yeah. A million people suffering from nearly almost severe mutilation. I'm not sure if, the, if these adjectives are going in the right direction, but imagine that, you know, that's going down. Nearly almost severe mutilation, better to prevent a million people from suffering that than 10,000 people from suffering or nearly or almost severe mutilation. The next one. But anyway, you, I mean, you know, it would be tedious to, sort of keep, to keep doing this. But the point is, you could, you could imagine at each step, you could imagine a, a sort of degree of harm that's just a little bit less, but it's still close enough to the next one up that we think, well, look at the choices between, you know, preventing this harm to, you know, higher harm to one person or the slightly less severe harm to 100 people. It's better to prevent it to 100 people. 
And then you can, what you've got is you've got a series of judgments that say, they start out by saying it's better to prevent 100 severe mutilations than one death. It's better to prevent 10,000 almost severe mutilations than 100 severe mutilations. It's better to prevent a million nearly almost severe mutilations than 10,000 almost severe mutilations, and so on. And you could keep extending this sequence until you got down to a minor headache. On the assumption that a minor headache, I mean, you know, it, it's minor, but it's, I mean, it's still better that it not happen. I mean, if we get to the point where we say it makes no difference at all, then we've, then we've gone off the end of the moral scale. So we, it's got to be something where we say, well, look, it's still better that you not have this minor headache than that you have it. Well, presumably there's a slightly more severe headache, which is worse than that, but still it's not that much worse than that. So it's better to prevent a hundred of these minor headaches than just one of these slightly more or slightly less minor headache. But when you've got this whole sequence, if, if A is better than B and B is better than C and C is better than D and D is better than E and so on, then A is better than the very last thing in that sequence. And the last thing in that sequence is, you know, in, in the example that you gave, uh, Jason, is like minor headaches. The reason we know that is that better than obeys this sort of mathematical principle of transitivity, right? Which is, I think of it in, in mathematical terms. You know, if, if, if four is bigger than two and two is bigger than one, then four is bigger than one. So bigger than obeys this. So better than also obeys this principle of transitivity. It would be very strange if, I mean, let's say you're faced with three options. And option A is better than B, option B is better than C, but option C is better than A. And by better than, I mean taking everything into account better than. Obviously, things can be better than other things in different respects. So you might, you know, Mark, you might be a better chess player than, than me, and I might be a better runner than Jason. Nothing follows about whether Mark is better than Jason in any respect, because, you know, we, we've switched respects. Better chess player, better runner. But in the case of, of, you know, judging outcomes as being better or worse, we're talking about taking everything into account. All things considered better that, you know, I suffer like this or I suffer like that or I suffer like that. So that's why you know, better than obeys this principle of transitivity. If it didn't obey the principle of transitivity, the world will be a completely irrational place. I mean, you could, for example, you could make lots of money off somebody by continually offering them alternatives. If you prefer B to A and you prefer C to B and you prefer A to C, you know, and you start out with A, I could say, well, look, I'll give you B if you give me uh, $5. So I give you B and, oh, I've got C, give me C. Uh, I'll give you C if you give me another $5. Now I've got $10 off you. But I've also got A because, uh, you know, you gave me A when I gave you B, that's the exchange. So now I can give you A and another $5. And we're back to where we started with you. You're back to where you were. And, I'm, and I've got 15 of your dollars. Uh, and I could just keep doing this. This is what philosophers call a money pump. So it's not irrational like that. People are irrational. People do have preferences that are intransitive. I mean, there's a lot of research that's shown that. But nobody thinks that this is a good thing. I mean, this is a flaw in our reasoning. We're not perfect reasoners. In fact, we're pretty bad at reasoning in, in general. The world is not irrational. People are ir irrational. And so, so now, now uh, this is one of these bullets. Again, you know, I, I say, okay, so what, what does all this tell us? Well, what all this tells us is that, yeah, in theory, you know, if, if the headaches we're talking about are, are, are actually bad, you know, even if just a little bit, but actually bad. I mean, the, 
they they are such that it would be better uh, not to have them than to have them, other things being equal. Then, yes, and, and the death of this politician you're talking about. So, we, you know, you know, well, doesn't, you know, so it's none of the politicians that we're thinking of, right? So that's the point. If the death of this particular person is, is also bad, then in theory, there, there is a number of headaches, which is large enough, that if you could prevent those headaches by killing the politician, it would be better to kill the politician than to let people have the headaches. But of course, you know, again, we think, wow, but that seems wrong. It can't, no, no number of headaches. It's, it's, it's just counterintuitive. Well, I refer you back to my earlier answer uh, about how much we should trust intuitions. And the other thing, of course, is that just because I, I say there are some number of headaches, which is large enough, that preventing that number of people from having this minor headache uh, would justify killing a person, doesn't commit me to any answer about what that number is. It might be more, the number might be big enough that is more bigger than the number of sentient beings in the universe. I mean, I suspect it's not that big, actually. I mean, I don't mean by not that big, it's small. What I mean is it's not as big as the number of sentient beings in the universe. But almost certainly, it's a number that's, that's sort of so large that, that no matter what we did to the world to try and sort of bring about this situation, we, we would never be able to create a situation in which you really could a, prevent that number of headaches by killing someone, and B, there's no better way to prevent that number of headaches than by killing somebody. So again, our intuitions, of course, it's never right in the real world to kill somebody to, to try and stop people having headaches. But that's because in, in the real world, A, you're not going to stop people having headaches by killing people, or at least if you did, there would be other ways you could stop them having headaches short of killing somebody, you know, ban this politician from appearing on TV. He might not like it, but presumably he'd prefer it to being killed. And, and, and in fact, then, you know, the, the numbers would, would sort of never get big enough. So, so yeah, I am committed to, to the view that, yes, in theory, you can compare harms of, of radically different sizes. As the sizes, you know, as the difference in size gets bigger, it becomes much more difficult to do the comparison. And so, again, given that we live in the real world and we're not just philosophers sitting in armchairs making stuff up and we have to make choices in, in the real world, you know, it's a pretty good rule of thumb that if somebody says, you know, should you kill somebody to prevent headaches? Your answer should always be no, but it should always be no because in the real world it always will be no but it doesn't mean that there aren't theoretically possible circumstances in which the answer will be yes but those theoretically possible circumstances um, aren't going to impinge on our experience and so a we shouldn't expect our intuitive reactions to those thought experiments to tell us anything about morality and b we shouldn't have to worry about them because we're not going to encounter them so i want to ask you about this I often think about moral theories as being reasons for action, that they create obligations on us, they tell us how we ought to behave. Now, what you've described is a very useful system for comparing states of affairs. So we can sort of tell this is much worse than this. This has more goods than bads. And one of the typical concerns with utilitarianism is that it can um, make you make dramatic sacrifices, that you can lose all of your freedoms because you could, instead of recording an episode with us you could be you know um, spending time looking after someone who's sick and dying you could be you know 
instead of buying luxurious goods, you could be spending that money, you know, saving people from uh, dying of malaria, you know, and this idea that the theory is overly demanding, that it um, collapses the distinction between what you ought to do and what would be best to do, you know, that's the beyond the call of duty sort of distinction. But I wonder if there's a way to get out of that. In other words, if you can at one point say, well, I can recognize that this would be the most good thing. But that doesn't mean that I have an obligation to do that, that there's a distinction between a theory that tells you what the right thing to do is and a theory that tells you what a good thing to do is. Yes, excellent, excellent question. And, and that, you know, I, I mean, in a nutshell, that is my approach to, to utilitarianism. I, my view, which, which is a non-standard view. So, I mean, some, some people in, in, you know, in the in the the world of academic ethics, which is a you know a small and insular world, you know, some people sort of think of me as the arch utilitarian, but others think of me as a, as a heretical utilitarian, because in fact, I I I do say that the that the notion of obligation, which is often equated with the with, with the notion of right and wrong, the idea is you know you're obligated to do what's right, and and to avoid what's wrong, I. The notion of obligation, I say, has, has no place in a theory like utilitarianism. That the, what the theory is, is really fundamentally about is a theory of comparative moral reasons. It's a theory that tells you how much moral reason you have to do to behave in one way rather than another. And of course, it can, it can apply to not just to behavior, it can apply to, say, you know, states of character. You know? So how good or bad a character you have is also a question. That utilitarians concern themselves with so so yes i mean i agree that that fundamentally utilitarianism doesn't make demands in the sense that i don't think i don't think that the notion of a demand it is sort of grounded in what i think of as sort of fundamental moral reality but of course you know people talk about right and wrong all the time so some people would then say to my approach but you know you've you sort of thrown out the baby with the bathwater at this point. I mean, how, how can you have a moral theory if it doesn't tell you what to do? And theories tell you what to do by telling you what's right and what's wrong, or what, what obligations you have, how you meet the demands of morality. And the notion of a demand of morality then leaves open the possibility that, that we could go beyond the demands of morality. You, you mentioned going above and beyond. This is a, a notion in, in ethics known as super erogation roughly speaking going above and beyond the demands of duty you imagine somebody you know one person doing as much as morality requires them to do and somebody else in the same situation going beyond that by maybe well usually that involves the idea of sort of sacrificing some of their own interests so it's not just that they do something that's more than what morality demands it's that it's also it's also sort of sacrificial on their own part so it might you know the ultimate sacrifice of course would be sort of laying down their life but there are other you know other sacrifices you can make such as you know not enjoying this time talking to you but that you know uh, spending my time building building houses for the homeless or that kind of thing so yes i mean we do typically think that morality is in the the business at least partly in the business of telling us what to do and by that we you know, I, I think ultimately what we mean is guiding our behavior. And what I think is that, you know, our behavior can be guided 
by providing reasons and reasons themselves can be comparative. So our behavior can be guided by telling us simply, well, I've got more reason to do this than that. I've got even more reason to do this thing than that thing. And we don't need to add, and what I really ought to do, what I have to do, what's the right thing to do, what it'd be wrong not to do is the, this other thing. Maybe, maybe you know, the, the, the sort of the most sacrificial thing. Does that mean that we, we should then sort of stop using terms like right and wrong, obligation, demand? Not necessarily. As a utilitarian, I judge everything, including conventions of language, by the results of employing those things, you know, those conventions. So would the world be a better place if everyone were raised to think in purely comparative terms, if we stopped using words like right and wrong or you know similar kinds of concepts. I, I honestly don't know. I mean, I do know having you know raised a child and seen many friends raising other children and being a child myself many years ago, that when you when you sort of start out with with any kind of normative education, some moral education being the obvious one, any kind of sort of teaching people how to behave it's easiest to start out with what looks like simple rules. And what look like simple rules are do this and don't do that. I mean, religions are full of this. Think of Christianity and the Ten Commandments. It's a bunch of do's and don'ts. Do this, don't do that. Um, three, four, five-year-old children probably wouldn't respond very well to being told, well, think about what's better and worse and just, you know, sort of guide your behavior according to sort of how much better certain options are. You're told, don't do this, don't lie, don't pull the cat's tail, don't, you know, don't hit your brother. And, you know, do, I don't know, it's usually don't, but I, I, I'm sure there, there are some things we're, we're told to do. But here's the thing, once we get to be adults, we can start thinking in slightly more sophisticated ways. So I think of, you know, deontological approaches to ethics, approaches that focus on rules like, you know, it's wrong to do this, it's right to do that, as the morality of the nursery. But that doesn't mean it's only for children, because many people behave like children. So it still might be a good thing that we have lots of, of rule. I mean, clearly, you know, when it comes to legal rules, we have to put things in terms of you know, here are the standards that you have to meet. And if you don't meet these standards, you're subject to legal punishment. I say clearly, I, I, I guess I haven't really explored in detail what it would be like for legal rules to behave in this more sort of nuanced, what I call scalar fashion. But of course, when it comes to morality, what we might say is, what I say is, yeah, fundamentally, there's only comparative judgments of better or worse. Fundamentally, the facts are that it's Maybe it would have been slightly better if I hadn't, you know, if I'd blown you guys off and I'd, and I'd, I'd helped build houses for the homeless. Maybe. I, I actually, I don't know, because I can't now go to that other possible world and see what that's like. But does that mean I've done the wrong thing by doing this? Well, imagine what the world would be like if we basically encouraged everyone to think that you're a moral failure unless you do the absolutely best thing you can do on every, on every particular occasion. Well, here's one possibility, I think a very strong possibility. If we tried to do that, then people would give up on morality because they would find it too difficult. Um, now, it, that doesn't mean that on any particular occasion, it's too difficult to do the best thing because in a sense, if it's literally too difficult to do the best thing, then it's not the best thing because what a utilitarian 
when a utilitarian, when the standard utilitarian, not me, but the standard utilitarian who does have an account of what's right and wrong, who says the right thing to do is the best thing. This is called a maximizing utilitarian. What they mean by best is best of all the options that are actually available to you. And so if something is, if an option is literally too difficult for you to do it, then it's not an option. I mean, it's not, it doesn't count. So what you should do is the best thing of all those things that you actually can do. But it, it could still be the case that even though, you know, telling me to do the best thing on every occasion doesn't mean that there's any particular occasion where, you know, you literally can't do it. What it might mean is that if you try to behave like this throughout your life, you very quickly sort of give up and say, well, you know, morality is not for me. It's too difficult. Peter Singer, who's, who's also a, a utilitarian, who I think is still a standard maximizing utilitarian, although I'm working on him, and he claims that he is actually quite uh, sympathetic to my approach. He got me to address one of his seminars and talk about this stuff. I mean, Singer has recognized this. I mean, his, his official view over the years has been the right thing to do is, is the very best thing. And for him, the, you know, that's in terms of, of maximizing the amount of well-being, both human and animal in the world. He used to think of it in terms of satisfying preferences, but he's now changed his mind and has a, an approach that's more like mine and many other utilitarians. We're talking about sort of amounts of happiness and unhappiness, suffering and well-being. He also recognizes that telling people that they, the only way you can sort of, you know, be a moral person is by doing the best thing will probably be counterproductive. And so in, in, in a lot of his public pronouncements, he will focus on, on specific goals that are reasonably demanding, but still attainable. So, for example, tithing, the practice of giving 10% of your, now it, it can vary depending on whether you mean of, of your total income or your disposable income, obviously, if it's disposable income, it's going to be a lot less overall, depending on what you mean by disposable, so what you count as, as necessities. But I mean, even if it's just disposable income, it's still probably more than the vast majority of people give, although not Peter, he gives considerably more than that. But telling people that what you need to do is give like 10%, as opposed to you need to figure out the most you can possibly give without reducing yourself to a state of such abject poverty that you're worse off than the people you're trying to help or, or that you, you know, then you won't be able to keep earning money to help people. That, you're going to achieve more good by telling people to do that. And so you, you could think, well, okay, you could imagine an approach that says, yeah, the right thing to do, uh, an approach that's consistent with my, my version of utilitarianism, that says the right thing to do is to do, you know, a, at least as much good as sort of the appropriate ideal. And the appropriate ideal, what we call the appropriate ideal, might actually vary depending on who we're talking to and what situation we utter those words. And, and this general approach is called contextualism. So we might say, yeah, fundamentally, the only facts about morality are how much better or worse certain options are. And so we might say, yeah, the very best thing you can do is this, and that's it. It's not like that, you know, we also add that's the right thing to do. That's the very best thing to do. But when we make claims like you did the right thing, or, or even you went above and beyond the, the, the call of duty, then we're invoking a concept of an appropriate sort of ideal or appropriate option. And what, what could be appropriate in one circumstance might be different from what's appropriate in another circumstance. And I'm not talking about like, you know, different behavior, you know, the circumstance being, you know, I, I, I helped out in this situation or that. I'm talking about 
the very same behavior being judged by different people in different circumstances. And so, so I, I, I mean, imagine, imagine a group of people who adhere to the philosophy in as much as we can call it that of Ayn Rand, who's, you know, roughly speaking, an, an, an ethical egoist. So, well, not roughly speaking. I mean, she, she has an article called The Virtue of Selfishness. She, she's the arch ethical egoist, is, is, is Ayn Rand. So imagine a, a bunch of Randians. They call themselves objectivists, but I think that's a horrible appropriation, misappropriation of language. So imagine a bunch of Randians, and, 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 and they're talking about, you know, a friend of theirs who's donated a certain amount of money to charity. Uh, and they said, wow, that was a super duper good thing of that person to do. Because, you know, Randians don't say, you know, you can't help others. I mean, I ran, you know, herself quite specifically said to somebody, you know, if you want to help people, go ahead and do it. You know, <laughs> that, that, that's up to you. So you can imagine them saying that was a super duper good thing to do because those people in their circumstance, they think, well, yeah, the way you the, the way you actually live up to the demands of morality is you don't. Well, you know, technically, for a Randian, it's, you don't harm yourself. But you know, they might they might go slightly further and say you don't sort of actively harm other people. And so, if you help people a little bit, well, that's that's really good. But then you could also imagine, uh, you know, a group of Christians who have a strong commitment to charity and to something like a principle of beneficence. I mean, I happen to think that when you know Christ, you know, the, the literary Christ, I have no idea if there was a real Christ or if there was what what he actually said. But the literary Christ said, love thy neighbor. I, I you know, I, I interpret that to mean, you know, maximize the good. Uh, I think Christ was an, a utilitarian. I mean, again, the literary Christ. So imagine a bunch of Christians who say, well, you know, so-and-so, you know, gave $10 to charity. That was pretty mean-spirited. They could afford a lot more than that. And so the Randians might say, yeah, that person went above and beyond because they weren't required to give anything to charity. The Christians might say, well, that person gave a lot less than they should have given because, you know, at a very minimum, they should have given more than that. And they're judging the very same piece of behavior. And they might, both groups of people might be saying something true because what, they, what the Randians are saying is that person did more than was appropriate. And, but appropriate, you know, picks out a different option in the conversation of the Randians from the option it picked out in the conversation of the Christians or utilitarians or, or Kantians who, you know, Kant had a strong principle of charity too. He wasn't all that. So there, I mean, this is long-winded way of saying, yeah, there's a way that we can accommodate talking about good, uh, about right and wrong, about duty and obligation without uh, insisting that it's a sort of fundamental part of our moral theory. It, it might be sort of a useful tool for, you know, promoting the good. And, and so different ways of using these terms can be evaluated in different contexts. And so one of the things we can do, we as, you know, sort of ethicists who are also presumably concerned with, you know, getting people to behave better, one of the things we can do is try to sort of up the stakes in the linguistic context in which we talk. And so make people aware, I mean, here's, here's you know, one easy way you can do that make people aware of how easy it is to make a positive difference without, without sacrificing too much. So I'm a vegan. I think that there are strong reasons not to eat animals because I, I think there are 
strong reasons not to treat animals the way that they get treated in agriculture. And there are strong self-interested reasons why plant-based diets are healthier and all, all kinds of stuff like that. But when you think about it, everyone has to decide what to eat. You know, on a daily basis, they have to decide what to eat. You've got to eat something. Well, you know, unless you're in a food desert, and of course, some people are. I mean, so I'm mostly talking to people who live in the United States, so where, where even in fairly poor parts of the United States, increasingly there is easy access to plant-based uh, foods. Well, just plants, for example. Encouraging people to eat like plant-based foods rather than animal-based foods. I mean, that's one easy way that you can make a difference. And so just raising that as a possibility, so bringing it into the linguistic context. So when you think about your choices, well, here's one of the choices you could have made, and here's how easy it would be to make that. It's more likely that you will then see making a worse choice in terms of like ordering the veal or the, the pate, the foie gras, as sort of beyond the pale, as, you know, not even living up to a standard of minimal decency. And that's a way that we can actually, you know, in a sense, we're, in, we're affecting a linguistic context in order to bring about a change of behavior. Well, I still want to say this has been an absolutely fantastic conversation. We've managed to cover an enormous amount of ground in some wonderful detail. And we look forward to having you on again to regale us with more of the virtues of utilitarianism.